This is the Lunduke Journal podcast for Sunday, September 25th, in the year of our Lord, 2022. As we do every Sunday, we're going to be going over the important news of the week. And only the important news of the week. Uh, we're talking Linux, alternative operating system stuff, retro computing stuff, a little bit of retro gaming stuff here and there. The important things, the things that make us smile when we read them, not the everything is doom and gloom, not the oh my gosh, the economy is blah, 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 blah. None of that garbage, just the fun stuff. <laughs> and definitely, definitely. No, have you heard about the latest trend in high uptime cloud computing deployment container alternatives? No, no, none of that stuff. Just the good stuff. Uh, <laughs> this has been a kind of a fun week. Last Wednesday, we ended DOS week at the Lunduke Journal, which meant we, we just spent a ton of time in DOS. And it was amazing how much stuff we did. I posted a Roundup article back on Wednesday, talking about just linking to as many of the community posts over on lunduke.locals.com as I could find. And it was just, it, they they numbered in the millions, more stars than in the sands of all the beaches and in the Milky Way. You know the thing. You know the thing. <laughs> anyway, it was amazing. I learned a whole bunch about DOS that I didn't know before, which I was not expecting. And I, it was really fun to watch so many people try DOS on raw hardware, network with DOS, do things in DOS that, you know, we, we just didn't necessarily do back in the 80s or or the early 90s or or that we haven't thought about doing for a long time people rediscovering the computing of their childhood it was it was fantastic i i, I loved it we definitely definitely need to do more themed weeks like this going forward not every week because that's going to get a bit crazy but I, i'm thinking sometime during october next month we got to do another thing I, I don't know what it'll be but something totally different than a dos week you know maybe it'll be uh computing in a certain way or using certain types of hardware or 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 dealing with certain types of of online services or maybe using a whole different modern alternative operating system i don't know maybe we'll have net bs D week. Who knows? If you have ideas, let me know over at uh, the Lunduke Journal community on uh, lunduke.locals.com. We'll figure something out. We got lots of time. All right, into the news for the week. First up, and I, this news story amused me so much. And it's really two stories in one. So this last week, we saw the release of a new version of Firefox, the web browser, right? And a new version of GNOME or GNOME, if you don't say words correctly. Now, here's the thing. Firefox is now at version 105. <laughs> and GNOME is up to version 43. Not 4.3. 43. Now, if you think back, if you've been in the Linux world for a while, you can remember back to when GNOME 3 came out with the GNOME shell, right? So there was, there was GNOME. Gnome 1, right? And that's the one, that's the classic gnome from the, from back when like Red Hat, back when Red Hat was just a distro you'd buy in a box shipped with gnome, right? And then Gnome 2 kind of became this big distro. That's when Gnome really took a foothold in the Linux world. Uh, uh, Ubuntu, 
Ubuntu chose GNOME for its default interface, and it stuck with that for quite a long time. And that was GNOME version 2, 2 dot whatever that, you know, depending on the date. And then GNOME 3 came along. And with it came the GNOME Shell, which is that new interface that they currently have. GNOME Shell introduced the current look of GNOME, and that was with GNOME 3. So reasonable. GNOME 1 was the first release. GNOME 2 was a huge update. I mean, going from GNOME 1 to GNOME 2, the look and feel of it was, was light years different and highly improved. And then the jump from GNOME 2 to GNOME 3 was, again, a wild departure. Not just the API and the frameworks, but the whole look and feel, the way the workflow worked. It was gigantic, that shift. And now we've gone from version 3 to version 43 in an, um, only a couple of years. And there's not that big of a difference between GNOME 3 and GNOME version 43. It's crazy. Now, there has been some stuff, uh, and I'll talk about that in a second here, but it, they're, they're moving forward with these new major version numbers so rapidly. And Firefox 105? Good heavens! They release a new version of Firefox like every three and a half minutes, it seems. Like, this is getting insane. It used to be when you had a major version number update, it would be, you know, I don't know, every couple years or many years between major version numbers. And it would it would signify something dramatic. Maybe it would be a huge breakage in your APIs. Maybe it would be a totally brand new interface or a huge new feature set. Something, something to signify a big new version. But no, I... I like, if you look at the release notes, and I, go check it out, lunduk.substack.com for uh, the article up for, for this week's news. If you go look at it, the release notes for Firefox 105 is just dreadfully boring. Like, there's a few things in there where on Windows, certain swipe gestures were changed. And that's, like, the big news. Not kidding. It is the most... The, not only is the feature list change in 105 of Firefox amazingly small, it's also dreadfully boring. And like it, it, I almost fell asleep. It is so astoundingly boring. Uh, it's ridiculous. Now, on the GNOME side of things, to be fair, GNOME 43 does have some interesting stuff in it. Um, uh, they have a kind of a refreshed file manager, which really looks almost identical to their currently existing file manager, but a little different. And they've updated their their quick settings. The, you know, the quick settings up in the upper right hand corner, you click on like the, the clock battery volume and everything. And you get the little drop down with with things like change your volume, change your brightness, blah, 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 blah. Right. All those sorts of settings. So quick quick settings so you don't have to open up all the settings applications. They've updated that a little bit so it, it honestly it looks pretty slick. Uh, it's very rounded. It's like it's like ovals within ovals within ovals, but uh, I mean it, it 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 looks okay. Does it warrant a brand new major version number? Probably not. I mean the Firefox, no. Oh my heavens, no. Goodness gracious, no. It's ridiculous. But, uh, you know, what can you do? So those new versions are out. If you use GNOME and Firefox, uh, you can go grab 105 and 43 of them. Maybe if you add those together, that is 148. And that's a whole lot of version numbers. So enjoy those extremely 
high version numbers. Um, in far more interesting news, where the news is both pointless and and fascinating and just delightful, a brand new game has been announced with a demo for the Nintendo Virtual Boy. I love this. It's awesome looking. Okay, so remember the Virtual Boy, right? The the headset goggles that you you kind of put your head into. It had a little stand, and it had just really you know red graphics that kind of focused on vector art, but wasn't exclusively vector art. And uh, lots of red flashing lights blasted into your retinas uh, with a little controller that actually looked a bit like the GameCube controller, but way before the GameCube. And uh, the the graphics were just red. It was just red on black, and it was all you know virtual reality ish. I'm like okay, uh, it got yanked off the market. It, the Virtual Boy was only on the market for about a year, a little less than that maybe, and it got yanked off the market uh, for the obvious red flashing lights uh, blasted into your retina reasons. Um, so it, it has a fairly limited selection of games. Um, I have I have a Virtual Boy, and I have. Uh, I don't know, I want to say 15, 16 games for it. A lot of them are pretty terrible. I mean, it, it some of them aren't bad, but it's not a it's not a great system and it's not a great game library available for that system. Just the same, someone has created a brand new game that is a like a uh, an homage to uh, all the 3D wireframe tank games that are out there. It's called Virtual Warzone. And it is great looking. It, I mean, it, it's one of those games, you know, that the drive around and you have vector art 3D, you know, battle tanks and war zone type games, battle zone and whatnot, where you, you know, drive around with like mountains in the background, just drawn in little line arts and you try and shoot the other tanks, right? Very simple. Great games. <laughs> Some of them, one of my favorite genres of games. And it's they've made a new one for the Virtual Boy. And I think that's incredibly cool considering the Virtual Boy got unceremoniously yanked off of the market 26 years ago. Awesome. Absolutely awesome. Uh, it's it, The ROM is only available currently to their supporters on Patreon. Um, so I, I have not tried it cause I'm kind of not really using Patreon right now. I'm kind of pulling away from Patreon, but, uh, um, the demo is available. The full version will theoretically become available sometime soon once they finish it. And I don't know if it's going to work on emulators, which there are some emulators for the virtual boy, or you'll need to use actual hardware. Cause there are, <clears throat> excuse me, there are, uh, ROM carts that you can get for the virtual boy. So you can load it up with ROMs and all that sort of thing, which is impressive, again, all by itself, considering this is uh, arguably the biggest failure Nintendo ever had, and yet we have emulators and ROM carts and, a, and apparently a, a, a developer scene for them. That's, that's just cool. I just find that incredibly cool. All right, all right, back to Linux. Back to Linux for a moment. And I want to rant a little bit about something. So the news here that I want to talk about is Arch Linux. Arch Linux has dropped support for Python 2, right? Because Python 2 uh, came out quite some time ago and was end of life actually um, a little less than two years ago. It hasn't received any updates. And every, they've been encouraging everyone to move to Python 3. 
Like, okay. And so our Arch has dropped Python 3, where Python, or sorry, has dropped Python 2, and Python 2 will no longer appear in the AUR, the Arch user repository. So the default repository for Arch Linux no longer has Python 2. And at first blush, this makes a certain amount of sense, right? That's, it's somewhat logical. It's, the reasons for dropping Python 2 are obvious. If it's not getting support anymore and you have an, this big interpreted language and uh, this runtime environment with all these libraries that go with it, you could theoretically have uh, some security issues and whatnot because it hasn't been updated in almost two years. So I get it. Toss it. However, Python 2 applications and scripts still have at least a large number of them still have some really significant compatibility issues with python 3 which means a lot of those applications and there's a lot of applications in the linux world that are actually python underneath not just little scripts but whole gooey graphical applications we're talking sound editors and and all sorts of things if you don't have python 2 a lot of those are breaking. So we're dropping support for the runtime environment when the new replacement for it is not a full replacement yet. And, and, and I understand the reasons why the, the Arch folks are doing this, but I hate it because it is yet another example of backwards compatibility problems in the Linux world, right? It, it's kind of a death by a thousand paper cuts sort of a problem, right? So the odds of Arch dropping Python 2 impacting all of us in catastrophic ways is really unlikely. More than likely, it's going to cause you and me a minor inconvenience here and there when we run across a script or an application that requires Python 2. Because can you install Python 2 on your Arch system in other ways or on other Linux systems? Yes, you can. Can it cause compatibility issues and all sorts of problems? Yes, it can do that too. But is it doable? Yes. So it's not an unovercomable problem. But this is just, you add this on top of the mountain of small to mid-sized compatibility issues that have occurred on Linux, and it gets kind of extreme. Uh, dependencies on specific revisions of like Mesa, um, libgtk, uh, uh, libc, all of it. Compatibility issues have occurred with all of them to the point where um, many Linux applications, games is an obvious easy one. If you go back five or 10 years and grab a Linux binary for a video game, there is a really reasonable chance it's just not going to run on your modern system. It's also theoretically possible that you can make it work with a whole lot of elbow grease. But it can be a real nightmare. Uh, one of the great examples for this is all the games that Loki ported to Linux in the early days. In the early commercial days, like the, the early 2000s. Uh, there's this game called Loki, and they, they, made, uh, they, they ported out games like Railroad Tycoon 2 and Unreal Tournament and a whole bunch of other games over to Linux. 
it was a big deal back then because you could buy big box games for your x86 Linux systems. Well, we still have x86 or x86 compatible Linux systems right now, but those games, by and large, the vast majority of those games do not run, and to get them to run on your Linux system requires more than just a tiny bit of hoop jumping. In some cases, it's just not doable at in any reasonable way at all without completely breaking your system for all other purposes, and in other cases, it requires a huge amount of script foo that most people, even power users, are not going to know to do. And it can often leave your system in a slightly broken state. And this, you just, these incompatibilities keep adding it up to the point where it is far easier right now to run Windows Win32 applications written for Windows 95 on Linux with a higher degree of compatibility than it is to run Linux applications written more than 10 years ago on a Linux system. That's insane. That is absolutely bonkers level of terrible backwards compatibility. Terrible. Like uh, almost to the comical, your your face is painted like a clown. It's so ridiculous levels of bad. And this, this little thing, this tiny, tiny move from Arch is yet another little paper cut. Anyone who's been around for a long time, if you've been around the Linux world since the 90s or even the early 2000s, this problem is getting to be annoying as heck. And, it's, and, and before any of you say this, because I, I, I know what many of you are thinking, you're thinking, well, this isn't a problem if the software is open source because you can just recompile it right? It's only a problem if you don't have the source code, right? Then you can't recompile it. Wow. It really, that it, it is not the case. In fact, many of those old pieces of software simply don't build against current libraries at all. Again, because the new replacements for them are incompatible with both the ABI and the API interfaces for those past applications. They just aren't compatible anymore. And so in order to make it work, you end up having to have, have to have many, many different versions of so many libraries from libc all the way up in order to get old pieces of software to work and when i say old i mean couple of years and this problem is accelerating this this problem isn't going away and while some people can point to uh, uh tools like um you know snappy or Flatpak or app image and whatnot to solve this problem which those systems do solve some of these problems. It also makes those packaging uh, systems infinitely more complex and significantly larger. And it, it is not a great system right now. The, it's, I'm sorry. It's, it's not a system I'm upset with. It's the general position that we're in where overall Linux compatibility is so bad with Linux software. It's terrible. It's truly terrible. I, I, I don't love it. Uh, right now, I have zero confidence that if I were to go on Steam and buy a series of Steam games, that those games will work on a modern Linux system five years ago from now. There is zero reason to think it will. Zero. I mean, we can hope that Valve and, and a bunch of the other Linux companies will work really hard to ensure continued compatibility, but there is where there is no track record, not one, not an eensy-weensy bit of a good track record for that happening. 
So we're hoping for something brand new to happen in the Linux world. And I don't I don't see it happening. I see I see the problem is getting worse. I, I significantly worse. Uh, so bummer right there. Uh, so if you run Arch, I hope you don't need anything that uses Python 2 going forward. So again, I understand why they yanked Python 2. The reasons for yanking it are valid. Their concerns about supportedness and and maintenance and security, perfectly valid. Totally get it. I just don't like it. I don't like where it's going. And, and realistically, going on odds, we'll probably see yet another example of backwards compatibility being broken by the end of the year. Because every year, it seems like there's a small handful of more paper cuts that come along. <laughs> dislike. Hit that dislike button. Um, <laughs> but something I do like. Something I do like quite a lot. So um, an editor over at the IEEE Spectrum uh, had a had a TRS-80 Model 100, though that slab laptop that I love so much. I, I've done a few write-ups on these in the past. Uh, it's an incredibly interesting machine. Uh, he had one of these, and uh, it broke. He'd been playing with it and having a good time, and it broke. And he said, he's like, well, shoot. Well, he played around with it a little bit, and he figured out what the problem was. It was basically one little, one little part that needed replacing. So uh, he hunted around for another Model 100 that was kind of broken uh, that he could pull that chip out of, pull that part out of to fix his other one. Okay, so he did that. So now he had his one pristine, beautifully working TRS-80 Model 100 slab laptop. And then he had another one that was now double broken. <laughs> it now had whatever was wrong with it in the first place. Plus, it was missing some chips. All right, so what is he going to do with this machine? It still had a perfectly good screen, case, keyboard, all that stuff. Uh, but the, the main board was toast. So what he did was, was pretty interesting and was worth doing. Uh, he gutted it and he, he, he basically made it into kind of this little standalone system slash terminal that can be used for, for other systems. And it, it was kind of an interesting way that he went about it. But why, I, why I'm including this here is not just because this is a, an interesting example of someone taking old hardware and repurposing it, which I always get a kick out of. And to be clear, I if if old hardware can be restored and kept original, that's always my preferred way to go, uh, just from a historical standpoint. But but when you have broken equipment, you know you do what you can with it. Do something nerdy. I totally get it. Um, but was really fascinating was he wrote up detailed uh, accounts of how the screen on this machine worked. And honestly, these are accounts that I'd never read before. And I was going to read a part of it to you because it was fascinating. Okay, so this is from the article. The M100's LCD is really 10 separate displays, each controlled by its own HD44102 driver chip. That's right, 10 driver chips. The driver chips are each responsible for a 50 by 32 pixel region of the screen except for two chips at the right-hand side that only control 40 by 32 pixels. This provides a total screen resolution of 240 by 64 pixels. Within each region, the pixels are divided into four rows or banks, each eight pixels high. Each vertical column of eight pixels corresponds to one byte in a driver's local memory. Fascinating. 
it's basically eight it's basically 10 displays all jammed together that's really cool and he goes into how how he uh how he can drive that from different systems because you know if you you're you're building a whole new system to use that same screen and that was what he was trying to do. He didn't want to replace the screen on it. He wanted to use that same black and white uh, 240 by 64 pixel display. Uh, he had some serious hoops to jump through, and he did it. And uh, he put some pictures up there. It looks great. It looks really cool. And uh, I also link to and provide pictures of another example of, of a different approach someone took to taking a TRS-80 Model 100 and making it modern. And this other person took out the screen and replaced it with this big HD high resolution color TFT, this really ultra wide one, and uh, and put an ARM single board computer in there, actually a Pine 64 ARM board in there. Fascinating. I, I love these. Again, if you can keep the original hardware, especially historical ones like this, uh, intact, please do. But if it's broken anyway, I mean, shoot. Why not have a little fun with it and see... <laughs> Let's see what you can do. I mean, I look at these pictures of the TRS-80-100 with the high-res screen, and yeah, I want that. Yeah, I want that. I want to, I want to, because the TRS-80-100 had an amazing keyboard, right? And the form factor is just so fun to use. So if you could do that with a high-res screen and a little more powerful machine under the hood, I could, I could do almost everything that I do for my work uh, via that little machine, and that would be just a ton of fun. Anyway, uh, so there, there you go. Uh, I, I linked all that because it was really fascinating reading and uh, a current example of someone doing something really cool and modern with some retro hardware. Uh, once again, thank you to everyone who subscribes to the Lunduke Journal at Substack or, or at Locals. Uh, if you don't currently subscribe uh, with the free subscription or the paid subscription, get on that. Even the free subscription you should have so you don't miss out on anything. But the paid subscription comes with all the goodies, all the books, all the exclusive articles, all the exclusive podcasts, all the fun stuff that we do around here. Uh, so I I highly recommend uh, uh, going and grabbing all that stuff. Uh, getting the subscriptions. Uh, there's different versions. You can get a monthly subscription, a yearly subscription, a lifetime subscription. Go go check it out. If you go to lunduke.substack.com, <clears throat> excuse me, there's an about link at the top of the page. That goes into it. That goes into what the Lunduke Journal is all about, our mission, our core philosophy, and all the various subscription options and whatnot. So join us. Have a good time with us. And uh, I love all of you. I hope you're having a great time. hope you did something really, really nerdy this week. I know a lot of you did last week because you told me about it, and it was awesome. I hope this next week is no exception. <laughs> all right, everybody. I'll talk to you later.